if you and I were on the FCC, we would vote the same way. If you and I were at the state legislature, you and I would vote the same way. But if you or I were at the city council level, we might well vote differently. Hi again, you are listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Lisa Gonzalez. We last spoke with Blair Levin on the Community Broadband Bits podcast in the spring of 2013. He's back again to engage in a friendly debate with Chris on public versus private investment in broadband infrastructure. The two compare notes on the pros and cons of each approach this week as a way to eventually achieve universal access. Blair is currently a senior fellow with the Brookings Institute Metropolitan Policy Project and is running the GIGU project. He's also the former executive director of the National Broadband Plan and was chief of staff to the FCC during the Clinton administration. We certainly are lucky to have him as a guest. Each week, ILSR produces the Community Broadband Bits podcast in order to share information on publicly owned networks and related telecommunications issues. We hope you'll consider contributing to our advertisement-free efforts. Please visit ILSR.org and click on the orange Donate button. Here are Chris and Blair. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm back with Blair Levin. Blair is now with the Brookings Institute Metropolitan Project, but you may also know him from his work with Gig.U and as the Executive Director of the National Broadband Plan. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, Blair, you and I have uh, had some, I think, great discussions in the past. One of the things that becomes quite clear is that you and I agree on, the, I think, the vast majority of facts and even theory, um, which is that we both agree that there's a problem in the United States that we need more investment in better networks and that the, uh, we're afraid the incumbents aren't doing a good enough job. I think that's a way of summing it up, perhaps. Um, I, I, I articulate it slightly differently, which is simply, uh, uh, this really comes out of my work with the National Broadband Plan, which is that uh, today in, a, in the United States, we have a, uh, for most communities, a cable uh, versus copper um, framework. And there's a big problem with, with that, which is that over time, bandwidth constraints will constrain innovation and economic growth and social progress. And so we want to move as rapidly as possible to a framework that has cable versus fiber. Um, uh, now, where, where, where it gets interesting is how do you do that and what's the best strategy for doing it? But what you and I absolutely agree on is that that would be a much better framework for America because then instead of worrying about how do we allocate scarce bandwidth, we'd be focused on the right question, which is how do you use that new basically infinite bandwidth bandwidth to drive economic growth. See, and I thought that if I just left you a gap, you'd do a, a, a better job of explaining it than I would. So, <laughs> so thank you for that. And, and I think that one of the things that we, we very strongly agree on is that uh, Google Fiber has led to a new discussion that I think is very important. Um, you know, from my perspective, it's really helped to uh, help the media understand why this is important. And I think both you and I recognize that, that Google Fiber is not something where we can expect Google to build throughout the whole country, but that it's leading to a, a new conversation that we need to have. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I, I think very, very highly of Google uh, for their willingness to do it. But one reason we started Gig.U was we didn't want to be in a world where Google, where, where basically the only way to get the kind of uh, infinite bandwidth was to fit the Google algorithm. Because, as you just said, there are a lot of communities that aren't going to fit it. 
And also, as a country, I think it's very bad to premise important public policies based on uh, the activities of, of a single company, no matter uh, how fantastic they are at engineering. So um, the Google Fiber project, which actually grew out of discussions we had with them at the plan, the, the, the really amazing moment uh, that demonstrated the truth of what you had said earlier was when 1,100 communities applied. That was a big number, and the incumbents all said, well, yeah, you know, it's just like asking Santa Claus for presents. There's no cost to it and stuff. But the truth is, it's very difficult to get 1,100 communities to, to spend time and energy and political capital trying to do something. And what I think they were saying, and it's subject to interpretation, was, look, there are 1,100 communities in the United States that understand um, that economic growth and leadership in the future depends on having much better networks than they have today. And they want to be in the front end of, of that, not the back end. Absolutely. And I also know that, that you tend to agree that cities should have the authority uh, to build their own networks or to partner with any entity that they choose because you're on the board of advisors for the Coalition for Local Internet Choice. Um, so Yeah, so no, I'm not only on the board of advisors. So actually, if you go back to the National Broadband Plan, um, I would be the first to admit that we uh, tried to do, um, tried to set up a process by which a lot of things were done that uh, had a certain kind of political viability to them. So whether it be the incentive auction and spectrum and a bunch of other things in spectrum that I think were really important, but also were politically pragmatic, um, uh, we did try to favor those things we thought would be likely to move the ball forward as opposed to simply doing theoretical things. One slight exception to that was we did uh, uh, suggest that Congress preempt all state laws that would um, uh, impede broadband development, uh, particularly these municipal these laws which restrict municipalities. Now, I did not expect Congress to do that, but I thought it was really important to put a stake in the ground that these laws were very problematic. And uh, I am both delighted and surprised by the extent to which the FCC has now taken up that banner, and I fully expect the FCC to take action against a couple of the egregious rules or site laws uh, sometime uh, next year. I might note that it's unfortunate in my view. I mean, I, the, one of the plan's big critics um, from DSL reports, uh, I was amused by this the other day where he said the single, mo I can't remember the exact quote, but nothing is more important to broadband competition than getting rid of these rules. Um, and yet, in his analysis of uh, discussion of the Brussels broadband plan, never mentioned that we actually recommended getting rid of the rules. Recommendation like uh, 8.19, I believe it was. <laughs> Something like that. It's the, yes, one that I can, it's the one that I remember. <laughs> right, right. That's exactly right. Good memory. Um, and but I'm but I'm delighted with where that's gone. And look, at, at the end of the day, there's a very interesting legal question about the power of the FCC to do that. But that should not distract us from the following, which is what the way we thought about it, which was our job is to do what we could to make sure Americans have the fastest, best, cheapest broadband. There is no evidence in the record that any of these laws have led to faster, better, cheaper broadband. There is evidence in the record that these laws have led to slower, worse, more expensive broadband. So the defenders of those laws ought to articulate what is their strategy for having faster, better, cheaper broadband. I'm not saying eliminating those laws will do the trick by, the, by itself, but I am saying it's certainly a positive step. But the, the best thing, frankly, is if the states themselves recognize the error of their ways and change it. Absolutely agree. The 
the states should really need to uh, repeal those laws because I don't think we can expect that the FCC would repeal all 19 laws that we currently see and the restriction in California, which some count as number 20, which only applies to uh, some more rural areas generally. So we really yeah, do need states to step up. Well, we do need the states to step up. But also, look, there are distinctions between the laws. Um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Google was considering, and this is all publicly known information, Google was considering uh, adding Denver and Boulder, but found that the Colorado law uh, prohibited them from moving forward. Uh, fortunately, Boulder has already passed uh, a popular referendum that would now allow them to do a deal with Google or, or anybody else or do it themselves. Uh, but there are some other laws that I find troubling, like the North Carolina law. But nonetheless, the North Carolina law did not impede uh, the kind of public-private partnership that, that Google or AT&T or some other folks are, were thinking about. So one of the things that I think is interesting is that though you and I agree on so many of these things, uh, we take a slightly different view in terms of what we might advise uh, a given city to do. And I don't really want to focus on the, the details of any given city, but I think if we just sort of posit an ordinary United States city, um, I would generally encourage them to look more at a publicly owned network, whether they operated it or not, as long as they still had some form of ownership over it. Whereas I get the impression that you tend to think it would be better if uh, if an independent company, uh, maybe Google, maybe some other local company, uh, was to own and operate the network. And, and that's what I think we can talk about for the rest of the show. Is that is that an accurate description? Um, yeah. I mean, one way of thinking about it is probably on these issues, if you and I were on the FCC, we would vote the same way. If you and I were at the state legislature, you and I would vote the same way. But if you or I were at the city council level, um, we probably, well, we, it all depends on what's actually in front of us, but we might well vote differently. Right. And I think, you know, both of us recognize that there's there's definitely different factors involved. Uh, you know, I would not recommend, I usually use the city of Philadelphia as an example. Uh, cities that have historically, um, I, I'd say, don't have the trust of the voters, perhaps, uh, in all cases, um, may want to think twice. Um, when you have, uh, you know, um, uh, you have some cities that just have a history of corruption, which is a, maybe a different case than, than Philadelphia. Um, but uh, I would not say that every city should build their own network, but I tend to lean in that direction. And yes. the reason that I do is because... Uh, I think that that if you have a private company build it, one of my greatest fears is that the private company can then decide to sell it. And there's no real public referendum. And fundamentally, Comcast is not a company that built cable networks all over the country. They're a company that bought cable networks all over the country. And so I'm just, I, I'd like to get a sense from you of as to if that's a, a fear that you would share. It partly depends on what problem you're trying to solve. What problem I saw with the National Broadband Plan, and again with kind of gig.u, was how do we get out of the framework in which the fundamental business question is how do we allocate scarce bandwidth? And that's the cable copper uh, framework that most cities have. Um, how do we move to a, how do we deploy abundant bandwidth? How do we let Moore's Law drive it? And so for me, if the network is there and it's delivering abundant bandwidth, the negative uh, case of selling it to a private sector entity um, is, is I'm less afraid of that than I think you are. Now, um, I recognize that private sector folks are going to have private sector motives, um, also, and, and some of those motives are not always 
in the public interest. But I think some of the others, some of them are. So the question is, how do you get the right framework so that, that as is often the case with the private sector, they're doing the right thing, not the wrong thing? Um, and I'm one of those guys who's, you know, fundamentally a capitalist, but I also believe that government has to, you know, do things like require transparency so that, you know, consumers uh, can compare apples to apples and, and things like that. So, and then by the way, there's no perfect solution, right? I mean, you're, you, the fact that they can sell it, I'm not sure what the problem down the road is, but there are other problems that we could talk about with, with public ownership that is not really about corruption. It's just about the nature of the public sector to be able to do certain kinds of functions well. I absolutely agree that there's no perfect solution. And, and in many cases, I, I view this very much as, um, in some cases, giving a community the maximum opportunity to fix mistakes that may occur as they go along. And and I would also say that, you know, when you say I'm a capitalist, the, uh, the it's hard when you're having a conversation in the United States. Um, I... I tend not to understand what people mean by capitalist, um, and so I just want to say that I'm also fully in favor of markets <laughs> working and that sort of thing. I'm, you know, I've, yeah, I've, no, look, I, that, that's actually a very <laughs> fair point, and and, and probably uh, uh, I, I should have articulated that a, a different way. Um, but one of the things that I think um, is a problem, and by the way, it's also a problem with certain public-private partnerships is that there's a high level of risk capital that is involved here. If, if we were starting with a blank piece of paper, if you had a brand new city, um, I would say the city should build fiber and then have a wholesale uh, offering and then have a bunch of retail opportunities on top of it. Absolutely. That's probably, you know, if, if you're doing Greenfield in a brand new city, you should, that, that makes sense. But in today's market, what Google is doing um, and, and what the folks in Champaign-Urbana who we worked with um, to help those communities, which were GigaU members, uh, get a gigabit network, or the folks in Louisville, Kentucky, or the folks in Portland, Maine, they're private companies who are investing risk capital, and that, that capital is at risk. Um, there's no guarantee. You're not getting a monopoly like AT&T got in 1913 or the cable industry got. Um, they don't actually like to talk about it that much, but they got a monopoly in the 60s and 70s and 80s in the franchises. It was prohibited from competing with them. That went away with the 96 Act. It really went away in 92 with the uh, Cable um, Act and uh, program access rules. Uh, but the point is there was signif there's significant risk capital involved here, and I don't uh, it's, it's difficult for cities to do risk capital well. I think that one of the things that I pull out of your preference for the private companies is a sense that, um, you know, we want to get to this area of abundance. And, and I absolutely agree. And, but my thought is that it seems like you're thinking of abundance from a technical perspective, which is that if there's a fiber network, and I think Susan Crawford often makes this point, that there would not be as much incentive um, to uh, create false scarcity on a, on a fiber optic network. And, and I, one of the things I would worry about would that be that even with uh, a cable versus fiber rivalry in the market, that you could still have a duopoly in which effectively Wall Street was pulling the strings so that both 
both providers, even if we were having better speeds than we currently have today, we might be getting overcharged on a regular basis and, and things like that. And so I'm, I'm curious how you might respond to that in, in the creation of false scarcity, even though you're on a gigabit network. Um, well, I think it's a really good question, and there's actually an example in the world of of it happening, right? Which is the Verizon um, file strategy, which I also ad- admired. Um, but I think in the fullness of time, we start to recognize that Verizon probably made a mistake in trying to match cable speed as opposed to doing what Google Fiber is doing, which is to completely um, overwhelm cable's advantage. That is to say, instead of saying, I'm going to have the same thing plus a bunch of other things, so I'll have a better total value proposition, um, what Google is saying is we will be 20 times better than cable at the same price point. I'm nodding my head furiously. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so that's that's a very good point. I think one of the great things about Google Fiber and and a lot of other communities have been the ton of gigabit announcements. We'll see in 2015 and 16 the extent to which they play out. But we are starting to see a changed kind of consumer expectation that they want to have not just kind of good networks, but best-in-the-world networks, world-leading networks. Once we have those, and I think the consumer expectation is there, I think it will be a while before we have a danger of scarcity again. Um, I'm, I'm being, being older than you, Chris. I kind of worry about what is it that we can do that can solve the problem for like 10 years as opposed to 30 years. So I appreciate some people who, you know, um, my, my friend, uh, Professor Benkler of, of Harvard, who is a really thoughtful and interesting guy, and we disagreed about a lot of stuff, but he once came to me and uh, was concerned that you know cable would max out at five gigs uh, on their network, and that this was really going to be a big problem for the country. And I said, "Well, the person who writes the second or third or fourth or fifth broadband national broadband plan will be the one to worry about what happens when you know we need more than five gig networks." Put that under uh, the category of problems you want to have. Yes, exactly. That would be that would be a wonderful thing. But um, I think in the near term, in terms of really moving the ball forward quickly. If you could take the kind of thing that Google Fiber is doing and offer just way beyond what people are currently using. And, and the key point here being what, it, what that means is, is that the incremental cost of adding speed is basically zero. And so um, people don't – in the in the current market, there's actually an incentive to have a little bit of a – um, tying off the scarcity and the throttling because it moves people to the kind of the higher tiers. Well, there's a good reason why in Kansas City, I think that this was true at one point, I think it's still true, Time Warner Cable has like nine different offerings because they're trying to figure out who you are and how how they can move you up to the next tier, whereas Google basically just has two tiers, the gigabit, which is kind of unlimited for 70 bucks, and and kind of a starter kit. Five megs, which by the way is better than the current low end, which I think is one or two uh, in the in the DSL um, uh, bucket, um, but at an almost low, you know, at an incredibly low price. We have some people who might be um, thinking you're you're forgetting that they have also the ability of the TV channels, but I think you're talking about specifically they basically have two internet speeds you can have. You That's can right. Have That's DSL right. type speed or gigabit, and if you have gigabit, then you could also get cable television if you would like. That's correct. For an extra fifty bucks on top of that, that's right. 
Um, well, I've 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 taken a couple of shots at your uh, leaning toward the the private sector ownership. You alluded to some things you think that the public sector does not do as well, and I'm just curious if you want to raise those and give me a chance to force. Sure, I'll get, I, and I'll give you a chance. <laughs> exactly, as I know you will. Well, one is risk capital, um, as opposed to kind of what you might think of as utility capital, and those are two different kinds of um, uh, the, the the market treats them differently. Um, one, you really have to evaluate the risk of never be getting your capital back. The other, what you're really uh, addressing is a kind of what is the rate of return relative to inflation and all kinds of other things. So it's a very different kind of market. Cities are very good at, at raising utility capital for parking lots, for electric and sewer and stuff like that. I, in fact, used to be a bond lawyer. I'm familiar with that. Um, but I think this kind of thing, particularly given the market structure we have today, uh, involves risk capital, which is which is not what cities do well. The second thing is management, technology management. Um, I th- I am very impressed by a number of cities and the CIO who, who have great CIOs, and I think one of the things the Obama administration should get more credit for, but they never will because it's just not the kind of thing that presidents get credit for, is they brought in some very good um, technology folks. But the but the truth is, it's very difficult to attract the kind of technological um, management that you need to operate these networks of, uh, on a government payroll and with civil service and all kinds of other things. There are all kinds of different reasons for that, but that's a, that's a second problem. And the third problem, which is related, by the way, is a scale problem. In other words, if it's, you know, there's a reason why Comcast um, or AT&T have a bunch of advantages in terms of how they buy equipment, in terms of how they buy programming, in terms of uh, how they buy um, the you know relationships with certain devices like set-top boxes. You, you need to have a certain scale to make those things work efficiently. Um, it's difficult. There are there are small rural companies who do it without scale, but they often do it with government assistance, the universal service program, or because they effectively have a monopoly. But um, uh, in that local market. But when you're talking about larger cities, uh, even with a large city, it's very difficult to have an Internet service provider who is only operating in one place. So those are three things that, you know, I can see scenarios in which, um, like in Wilson or Chattanooga, where, you know, for various reasons, those three things were overcome. Um, but I think generally I would be skeptical if I were on a city council of a proposal to have the city operated, um, starting with those three things. So those are not the only three things. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Those are good criticisms and, and I'd respond to each one in, in different ways. Um, the risk capital, I think, is interesting because I do think that if we wanted to see more Chattanoogas and Wilsons, uh, the risk capital would be the biggest limiting factor. Uh, I just I don't see that that's going to be the model that we're going to see a lot of cities moving forward with. And I think one of the things that I think about is someone who wants to encourage as much public ownership as is feasible is to figure out how to make it so we don't have to involve risk capital by doing incremental phased builds and figuring out how to, uh, for instance, I've been talking in a number of different places I've given presentations about is the idea of modestly raising property taxes to build an open access fiber network. Um, because I, it is a risky investment, although I don't think we can count on risk capital. And to some extent, um, you know, trying to unlock the Macquarie-type deals that I think you're probably even more familiar with than I am. I've had a number of discussions with them, yeah. 
Yeah, it's, and it's an interesting model, and I think in some communities uh, it makes a lot of sense. And I certainly think any community should have the right to think about it. Right. So then on uh, the the management issue, I'm I'm I've been given this a lot of thought because I think it's 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 a criticism I've heard a lot and I go back and forth as to whether or not I think it's valid over what time scale. And and I say that because I've looked back at the history of electrification and a lot of times people look back and say, "Well, electricity was much simpler." Well, in many ways I think it wasn't. People were getting electrocuted on a regular basis. You know, every day there was a newspaper story about linemen in somewhere in the country uh being electrocuted. It was an incredibly challenging business and many argued that cities didn't have the savvy and the ability to get those people and and I think the record is is proven that when it came to electricity that uh cities did very well and even I would say better than the public than the private sector. Uh, now the question I think is whether or not the internet and internet networks will will evolve along the same path, and I'm trying to figure that out. So I think it's a it's a good question. Um, I think history is is a little bit on my side, but then empirically, at least in the short term, I see a lot of very talented technical people that want to work for these sort of fiber optic networks because they're cutting edge and they're interesting. Now I don't know what happens after that sort of initial time period fades away. Uh, but but it's a it's a good question, and, and I don't want to make this show too long by by spending too long <laughs> on it. But <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna dodge that one with that excuse of time. It's a host prerogative, let's call it. Yeah, well, listen, I'll, I'll speak slightly against interest um, and tell you a very quick story that while we were when, in the early days of we got you, I was talking to someone who uh, basically an, an engineer at a comp- uh, at a very prominent ISP who said basically, no one goes to GM to build used cars. <laughs> what you go to GM for, if you're an engineer, is you get excited about um, building the concept cars, the cars that will be driving 10 years from now. And what they, what this person said, I love what you're doing with Gig.U, but frankly, in my company, where the real focus is how do we just, you know, jerry-rig this used car to, to, to deliver miles for another 10 years. Um, so, you know, that it is a really good point, but I got to tell you, and, and I've spent most of my life in the private sector, but I've had different stints in government, including being in Muslim Bondler. And I'm just, my general concern, if I was on a city council, would be can we hire people who are going to be as good as our competitors? Because we're talking not about a monopoly situation, but a competitive situation uh, in terms of making sure the network works and customer service works and that kind of thing. Well, it's a, it's a good question. And, and I have an answer that unfortunately trivializes it, and it's fun, so I'm going to, oh, I'm going to throw it out do there. Do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that it doesn't take a whole lot to run a network better than CenturyLink or to have better customer <laughs> service than Comcast up here in the Twin Cities. And, I mean, these are companies that hire good people, but fundamentally – I actually think that your question of scale works against those big companies. And and I I worry to some extent that that Google, I wonder how, you know, my parents will deal with Google because I think Google is terrific for someone like me that doesn't need any handholding. Uh but there's a lot of people out there who do need handholding and I don't know if companies like Google can provide it. Now a company like um I believe it's ITV, right? Or ITV IT3 yeah, yeah, in, yeah. I, in uh in that took over the Urbana Champagne. I yeah. think they can do it. They do a terrific job of it. Uh, and there's Sonic does a great job of it. And so there's definitely examples of it. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where we do need to hire people that will do a great job and they'll do far better than their competitors. But we shouldn't, you know, forget who the competitors actually are right now. 
Yeah, and, but I would say I, I think it's a it's a really good counterexample because Sonic and ITV are both wonderfully run companies. Uh, certainly, given what I know, and I haven't done detailed due diligence, but I, I deeply admire the leadership in those companies, and they seem to inspire people. And it is absolutely true that once you get to be too big, you become very bureaucratic, and therefore not responsive to people, and that that's a problem too. But I would also, I, I, my guess would be that if you were to talk to them, they would say individual cities can't achieve what we've achieved. You, you certainly need, you may not need the scale of a Comcast or an AT&T, but you need a lot more scale than an individual city is likely to offer. And I want to end with, with one last thought that we can both deal with, which I think is the hardest problem facing all of us. And that is um, expanding Internet to everyone. And I actually think that expanding Internet to everyone in rural areas is not as difficult as the urban area. And I say that because in rural areas, we have models that work. We have electric co-ops and telephone co-ops. And fundamentally, I just think if we got them the capital they need, they would pretty much serve everyone in rural America with pretty good connections, much better than, than this sort of proposed wireless type plans and that sort of thing. Um, so if you would just sort of indulge me in that, and we'll just focus on the lowest income areas. And in, in, for instance, in Kansas City, my question is how to make sure you know everyone in Kansas City is able to have a decent internet connection uh, when Google, you know, has, has provided a connection to the vast majority of the city. But there's areas that I believe about ninety percent of the networks uh, of the neighborhoods qualified. Right. Although I, I, one of the shows that that we've either just had on or or going to have on in the next week is a discussion with the people from Connecting for Good, and um, in some of these areas, uh, there's a concern. Some of the neighborhoods that have been lit up still only have. Uh, you know, ten percent of people um, signing up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, can, can I ask? A, I mean, I'm happy to answer that. And, and there's a couple of answers I think are often ignored. But but let's just start with the following question: Is there anyone in Kansas City who's worse off because Google came? And that's this is the question where I usually say, you know, at, at this moment in time, no. Um, and and I think you know, in another year, probably not. In five years. My concern is, is that, you know, you know all of the classic problems with universal service if you go down this sure. path of treating it like a market. And, you know, my concern is much like Yohai Bankler is that, is that the decisions we're making now are going to have very serious repercussions five, ten years in the future. Yeah. Look, I, I think that from the country's perspective, it was incredibly important to find a way to break um, – the uh, investment paradigm of 2009. And that investment paradigm was fundamentally that both cable and the telcos were both better off if they chose not to invest in next generation networks. There's a bunch of reasons why that's true, but fundamentally um, they both were better off harvesting their pre-existing network investments. And so I'm totally in favor of finding ways to give them new incentive to invest in better networks. Google Fiber is a big part of that that you and others. Everywhere that uh, such an effort has happened, the incumbents have responded by lowering prices, by improving speeds, and improving customer service. So I think that that, just kind of fundamental level, bringing that new dynamic in, improves it for everybody, whether or not they're buying Google's service. Um, There's also an interesting asymmetry between the way Google upgrades and the way cable upgrades, such that as it plays out over time, uh, the cable guys will respond, and unless you allow them to price discriminate house to house, which I don't think is likely to happen, what you'll see is that if you get a critical mass in a city, uh, cable will respond, and therefore cable will essentially be upgrading and offering a 
uh, a competitive, much faster speed to everybody um, because of the way they upgrade. They have to upgrade system by system, not neighborhood by neighborhood. Right. I want to refocus it just briefly back on, you know, is the low income question, which I think Google has solved beautifully with this option of the free connection. And I think the, the, the dynamics of it would work out well for any ISP at scale. Absolutely. And that was going to be my next point, which is what we're seeing is actually a very interesting experiment about what's the real barrier. We we do have a very big problem in this country, which is the one-third of the country that is not ready uh, to really utilize the Internet in the way that um, they should be able to do. And by should, I simply mean there are all kinds of advantages. Um, uh, I'm not saying that this should be their, their, how they get their entertainment. Rather, I'm saying that from a point of view of shopping more efficiently or getting healthcare more efficiently or uh, getting education, getting job training, there are all kinds of advantages of being digitally literate. And as a society, we really have to address that. That's actually on the one-year anniversary of the plan. Um, I said that I thought that was our biggest uh, error in the plan, was not to think more creatively about that particular problem. took full responsibility. The team did a great job. We just didn't, I just didn't think enough about it. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, while there have been some good things that, that NTIA, which is a federal government agency in the Department of Commerce, they've done some good things. We have a long ways to go. I was very heartened to see Commissioner Clyburn of the FCC give a speech in which she called for reforming the Lifeline program, which serves low-income people, um, to bring it up to the broadband era. I think she laid out five principles that are very, very good. We have to do that. But frankly, this debate about how we deal with the networks and improve them, um, they are related. But I think we as a society have to be able to move to, you know, kind of two streams at once and not wait for everybody to become digitally literate before we start moving on improving the networks. The neighborhoods that are not served at all by Google, do you anticipate that that maybe uh, city or state money or federal money ultimately would be provided so Google could expand their program in there? Or could we establish some requirement for any ISP to offer some base level at, at no charge? Uh, I think there's an infinite number of possibilities that I could speculate about. But it's kind of like, um, you know, I come at it from the perspective of one who was chief of staff at the FCC um, during the 96 Act, and we focused enormously on the following question. How do we increase competition between the long-distance providers and the local providers? Now, from the perspective of 2014, you might say, well, here's how we solved the problem. We had to merge, and that's not very good. But if you look at it the way I do, which was what we were really saying was how do we get voice to be more competitive? Massively successful, right? Because... Long distance as as a market disappeared because cell phones and Skype and a thousand other things basically lowered um, the economics of offering a voice service. So you can't, uh, again, I admire people like Yoga Bentler who can tell me what the problem will be 30 years from now. Um, but I think if you can if you can accelerate a solution for like a five to ten year parameter, you're doing pretty good. And my view is that... Um, I have confidence that if we can drive a, like I said, the cable fiber framework, we're going to drive all kinds of uses that are ultimately going to increase the value proposition for the networks 
in a way that low-income people will absolutely be able to take advantage of it. And by the way, the government's going to want them to take advantage of it. The great argument we haven't yet gotten to, but we're going to get there in a few years, goes to the following point, which is government will be the last enterprise to operate on both an analog and digital platform. And as every bank knows, as every financial services knows, as Walmart knows, as every big enterprise knows, you really don't want to operate on two platforms. You want to operate on a digital platform. Lots of different reasons for that. Government is no different, except that because they have to serve everybody, they're going on two platforms. So, yeah, I feel real confident that government will find ways of making sure that everybody's on adequate networks to improve the way government actually delivers those public goods and services. Well, I'm going to let you have the the final word, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. I always have, I think we have terrific discussions, and I always learn a lot. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk with you, even when we disagree, because it's, uh, uh, as as you and I have chatted about before, if the debate's between us, the country's going to move in a good direction. Right, and I can imagine a, a Comcast lobbyist listening to this and saying, wait, when did they disagree? <laughs> 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 so, thank you. About risk capital. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Talk to you later. Have a good one. Thank you so much. If you're interested in hearing our other interview with Blair, check out episode number 37. He and Chris talk about the GigU project and also talk a little more about private sector investment in essential infrastructure. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at communitynets. We want to thank Dickie F. for the music again this week. His song, Florida Mama, is licensed through Creative Commons. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Mm-hmm.